Let's bow with me as we pray and call upon our Lord to give us grace to hear, understand, and, and believe what our Savior speaks to us this Lord's day. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks in the name of Christ, your Son, our King and Lord. We ask now for your Spirit's help as we open Isaiah chapter 9 together, as we consider what you testified through the prophet Isaiah more than seven centuries before the light fully dawned upon mankind in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, will you, will you give to us all that we need to understand the Scriptures, the very word of life. Give to us a conviction of, of the sin that remains in us. Grant to those, perhaps, who are here this morning who have no knowledge of Christ, grant to them the light of the gospel to hear and believe it, to be ransomed by Christ, reconciled to God the Father, preserved and sealed by the power of your Spirit for eternity. We pray that you will fill our hearts with joy as we contemplate the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. As you take your seat, will you turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. Have you ever experienced true darkness? And I'm not talking about even those of you who live out in the country and you go out in the, at night with all the lights off. There, there still is light around you. Or even warm and toasty in your bed at night with all the lights out, there's still light in your room. That alarm clock or the phone or something is, is giving other ambient light. I'm talking about total absence of light. We had the opportunity several years ago to go to Natural Bridge Caverns outside of New Braunfels, and they warn you ahead of time before the tour, if you're afraid of the dark, there's going to be a moment on the tour when they shut all the lights off when you're completely underground. It, it, it's, a, it's an indescribable experience if you haven't felt that before. You, it's a darkness you can feel. You, you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face, but it, and it's, a, it's an oppressive kind of darkness. It's, it's, it, it evokes kind of a physiological response, and some people panic. Uh, some are, are greatly disturbed and anxious by it. But it lasts just a few, a few minutes, and you're, you're very relieved when those lights begin to fade back up. But much darker, much darker than any kind of environmental darkness than we can describe or experience. The Scriptures speak of a spiritual darkness that eclipses even that environmental darkness. It's far more oppressive, it's far more debilitating, it's far more blinding than any physical darkness we could experience. This spiritual darkness is deeper, it's, bla it's blacker than any political oppression or darkness that man has ever known. This spiritual darkness is mankind's greatest enemy. Sin and rebellion against God creates in the hearts of a man a darkness that's blacker than anything we can fathom or imagine. In Isaiah chapter 9, the Lord speaks into this kind of darkness through the prophet Isaiah. This, this occurs somewhere between 700 and 740-ish years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Here is Isaiah is ministering to the, the northern tribe, to the southern tribes of Judah. 
he, the, the, the foreign invaders have already ravaged northern Israel, and he's now warning Judah, the same fate awaits you. The Assyrians are ready to be used of the Lord for your destruction. He will not destroy you utterly. He will preserve a remnant, but there will, this, this, even this remnant will be marked by darkness and gloom because of their rebellion against God. And so it's always difficult uh, preaching a, that not, a series where it's not expository. We've not been going sequentially through it, so I've not already covered chapters 1 through 8 of Isaiah over the last several weeks. So we're sort of popping down in the middle, but we, we understand what's going on in the background. This is the people that's been condemned by God. A judgment has been pronounced upon them, but also a promise, as we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 9, that even in the midst of this darkness, a darkness of their own making, by the way, the light will once again shine. And it will shine brighter than ever before. None of the kings that we see addressed by Isaiah, none of the kings that we see from the Davidic line, even in Judah, where on balance the kings were better, if I could say it that way, than the kings of Israel, none of them fulfilled the covenant promises that God had made to his people. And as God is about to bring judgment upon his people, he, he imbues this judgment, even the judgment of God, with hope. So that's where we find ourselves as we read together chapter 9 of Isaiah. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Just the first seven verses will be our text this morning. As we contemplate this reality of God speaking hope and light into his people in the midst of an overwhelming darkness. Hear the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the God of his, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be, uh, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's notice, first of all, that light will overcome the darkness. And, and this is a, a proposition that we might take for granted, but we should not. Light will overcome the darkness. That's the promise. And you have to, in a sense, put yourself in, in the place of, of a Hebrew 
in the southern tribes of Judah, having a sure promise given by the prophet to you that because of your sin, because of your rebellion, because of your stubborn refusal to turn and follow God, a darkness as sure and certain as God himself will envelop you. You're going to be led into exile. You're going to be conquered by a foreign enemy. And yet, even in the midst of that, there is a hope imbued in that promise of judgment. All throughout the scriptures, beginning in the very first verses of Genesis, light is always given to us as a creative act of God. And God created light in Genesis out of what? Nothing. There was nothing there, and God spoke into existence light. And here, in his promise, he speaks to his people where there is no realistic, man-made hope. There is no light, and God speaks creatively into their situation says, I will bring light. Through God's creative act, creative act, light came from nothing. And here we need to see in the text, in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This darkness in which they walked was not merely an environmental condition. Now, on the hillsides of Judea, if you were a shepherd in the ancient country, you actually knew darkness to some extent. You could actually see stars that we can't even imagine. The moon could actually light up the entire countryside in ways that we don't get in, in a light-polluted metropolitan kind of area. But this darkness is not merely environmental. He's speaking about a human condition, and they walk in this darkness. It is more than just civil I mean, they're about to face the boot heel of Assyrian oppression. And, and then it's dark, it is bleak, it is gloomy, it is foreboding, but that's not even the darkness about which he speaks. It, it is a moral kind of darkness, the kind of darkness that Paul expresses in Ephesians, if you look at Ephesians 1 and 2, and, and you see Paul wrestling with this idea of the darkness of the Gentile mind. That gives you a sense of the kind of blinding, debilitating darkness that, that Isaiah is speaking about here, in which the people of God walked. Now, I don't think I need to work very hard to convince you of the ongoing darkness around us, do I? You just walk out your front door and look around, and you see in the, in the bright of the noonday sun, there is darkness all around us, isn't there? There is darkness in our civil sphere, certainly. We are very discouraged what we see at every level of the civil sphere, whether in our local or in our state or our national or even international dealings. There's a darkness in the civil sphere that, that's often discouraging. There's a moral and there's a spiritual darkness all around us. If you're paying attention at all, you understand how, how dark our culture has become in many, many ways. You see it in your own family members, in your neighbors, in your coworkers. All throughout this, our own community, men and women and children continue to walk in darkness. And every honest Christian will admit something profound. There is yet a darkness remaining in you, isn't there? There is a darkness that develops your own mind, your own heart, your own affections. Even those who have been bought and washed by the blood of Christ, there remains an indwelling sin. We still, in many ways, walk in shadowlands. We, we still wrestle with that indwelling sin. We, we wrestle with, with despair and hardship and grief and sorrow and suffering of various kinds. We, we face physical illness that can be absolutely debilitating, hopeless even. 
We, we can face financial distress, emotional trauma, death and loss of all kinds. Relational betrayal, marital strife, conflict, broken relationships, personal wounds, betrayals of every sort. No one in this room is a stranger to various degrees of darkness, are we? None of us are. But look at verse 2. And yet God has promised here light which will chase the darkness away, and, and he's promised to treat the darkness as an enemy that will be vanquished. He uses martial language, military language, to, to describe the darkness as, as an enemy that will be conquered. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Look at the verbs here. Multiplied, increased, rejoiced. But notice something significant. All these are in the past tense. All these are in the past tense. That, that's significant because Isaiah is speaking about a future event, and yet he's using a past tense. Why would he do that? Because the promise is so sure and certain that Isaiah can speak as if it has already happened, even though it is not yet. Isn't that where we live? We, we live in the present reality of, of sin and suffering and sorrow and brokenness, and yet we have a promise set upon us that is so sure and so certain that our Lord can speak as if it has already been fulfilled. There's a tension we find. You look at, at the 8th chapter of Romans, for example. This isn't in my notes, but just go home and read the 8th chapter of Romans and look at how Paul deals with the doctrine of adoption. He speaks of it at the same time as something that is future and yet already that has taken place because it is that certain. Notice the kind of rejoicing here. He gives some examples. He says, you've multiplied the nation. Here's a remnant. God has said in chapter 8, 7 and 8 of Isaiah, that there will be a remnant, a small number of faithful that will be preserved. And yet he's now speaking, again in the past tense, as if it's already happened, that that nation who will be taken into exile, who will experience the darkness of political civil oppression, will actually come out on the other side magnified, increased. Then he says, the second half of verse 3, they rejoice before you. And two, two examples, as with joy at the harvest. Have you ever been in a rural farming community when the harvest comes in? It's a joyful time. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of thanksgiving, the genesis of our own national holiday. It, it is a time of rejoicing because of the good gifts that God has received after much toil, after much labor, after long waiting. But he gives another example. They are glad when they divide the spoil. It's like soldiers sitting around in the aftermath of a hard-won battle and dividing the spoil together telling the stories of their victory, rejoicing in the gift of victory. One of the marvelous features here is, again, is that the, light, the reality of light dawning in the darkness is so certain that Isaiah can speak about it in the past tense as if it has already occurred. And this is the great hope of God's people. Even when our journey in this world is dark, even when we are surrounded by sorrow and wickedness, even when we are indwelt 
by gloom and shadow. The light promised to us, the light given to God's people, is so very certain that we can genuinely and truly see according to a light that has not even yet fully dawned upon us. But how? I mean, how does this work in, in God's perfect and eternal wisdom? How did he intend to bring this light to his people that was so certain he could speak about it in the past tense? What was the mechanism? How was this light to dawn? Well, we find this in the rest of the text. Light will dawn in the form, it's our second point, light will dawn in the form of a human infant. Now, that's unexpected, isn't it? I mean, when you think about darkness, when you think about political oppression, when you think about uh, the, 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 the kind of, of sorrows that often inhabit this life, you don't necessarily think of an infant as being the one to solve that problem. But that's exactly what Isaiah says. Look down to verse 6. For, us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Light will dawn in the form of a human infant. He says a child is born, a son is given. And son here contemplates really three different realities, three, three different degrees of sonship. One, we're going to see this more later on, it's the son of the heavenly father. This is an eternal, begotten, uncreated son. But it's also the son of David. And we see this in verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. See, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can go and read that. God promised to David, made a sure covenant with David, that from his own biological lineage, one offspring would be raised up. One offspring would seat, would be seated on David's throne forever. And on him, God would establish an eternal rule, an eternal government. So we also see the son of Heavenly Father. We see the son of David. He's a son by promise. He's a son who is destined to be king. But we also see, contemplated here, most fully in this passage, the son of Mary. The son of a human being. Physically carried in an ordinary woman's womb and born through the natural process of childbirth. Conceived supernaturally, but born normally, naturally. And, and we may know that Isaiah speaks of the future son of Mary, the, the human Messiah king, because Matthew's gospel, you turn to Matthew chapter 4, we don't have to turn there, but mark it in your notes. In Matthew 4, in verse 16 and 17, Matthew quotes almost verbatim the second half of verse 1 and verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 9. He applies this to the Lord Jesus Christ out of the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So we have an inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on these verses. Matthew gives us the interpretation. This is fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And this promised son was truly and fully man. 
So we, we, have, we have an infant put before us in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For, us to, for, unto, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And this son is a human being. He is fully man. Jesus had a truly human body. He had a human body, which, which means he hungered. He thirsted. He experienced physical fatigue. He, he needed food and drink and sleep. He, was, he, he established in himself our own, in the language of our confession, our own common infirmities. But Jesus also had a human soul. Our confession says not only did he have our common infirmities, but he also had our essential properties. Have you ever thought about what is the essential property? What are the essential properties of being a human being? There are two, body and soul. Our Redeemer must have both a human body and a human soul, and he did. The Bible tells us this plainly. So, for example, in the next week's reading in Mark, Mark's Gospel, we'll see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the very, on the very night in which he was betrayed, he's there with his disciples praying, and he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. Jesus is not using uh, you know, symbolic language here. He's speaking about his humanity. He had a human body and a human soul. And he says, my soul is in anguish. But he also had a human will. He had a human will. A human will that was distinct from the divine will. In Luke's gospel, we find this clearly described as our Lord prayed to his father mere moments before the mob came with their torches and their spears to arrest him. In Luke chapter 22, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had a divine will and a human will. He had a human body, he had a human soul, he had a human will. His true humanity was necessary for us to have a fully human Messiah who could bear our sorrows, serve as our high priest, and perfectly satisfy the full measure of the old covenant demands on our behalf. Now, we saw in our catechism this questions this morning, and, and those of you who know me know that I'm not smart enough or administratively gifted enough to plan this out ahead of time. It just so happens that as we're walking through our catechism, we just happen to be upon questions that are immediately relevant to our text this morning. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is truly human and truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. And question 16 says, why must he be truly human and truly righteous? God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. See, this is the dilemma that Scripture puts before us. Man has sinned, he's in need of atonement, but only another human being could satisfy the demands of God's justice, and only a perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous man could do that. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, demonstrates to us the necessity of this son of this child being fully human. In Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, we read this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See, according to his flesh, according to his humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ had to learn obedience to his Father, an obedience that none of us will ever perfect, and yet he perfected that on our behalf. All of his perfection, all of his perfect communion with God, all of his perfection in keeping the law of God, if you are in Christ, has been credited to you. So if Jesus Christ had not come in human form, if he did not share our common infirmities, if he did not share our common weaknesses, if he did not suffer the limitations of our shared humanity, he could not have been our Savior. He could not be our high priest. He could not intercede for us today as our great high priest had he not clothed himself in human flesh. So the doctrine of the Incarnation is absolutely, absolutely necessary for our Christian faith. And God in the flesh has drawn near to us. Some 700 plus years after Isaiah first spoke these words, Jesus Christ came. And yet, in order for this light to fully dawn on humanity, that's only half of it. He came as a son, he came as a child, he came as a human being, but that's only half. He also came as a divine son. He came fully God. This, this light, human light remains fully and truly God. That's our third point. Not only has this child come, has light come in the form of a human infant, but this light remains fully and truly God. The description that Isaiah gives in verse 6, for us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There is no human being for whom that description could hold true. Not one. Not one mere human being, I should say. The description that Isaiah gives here in verses 6 and 7 about this human child can only apply to one who is also truly and fully God. These titles could never refer to a mere creature. These expressions can only refer to God himself in full divinity. Later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 28, he's going to use a similar expression. He says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And in that context, he is clearly referring to God himself. And now he's saying upon this child, this human child, there will be these titles, these responsibilities, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is royal language. It's kingly language. It's divine language. 
if you were a Hebrew speaker at the time of Isaiah, and you were there and you heard these words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, your Hebrew ears would have immediately detected that no, no human being could satisfy the demands of these titles. No human being could do that. It, it would describe someone beyond any human ability. So how should we speak of this incomprehensible truth? That here is this son, here is this child, who's assumed human nature and yet remains fully and completely God. How, how should we speak of this incomprehensible truth? That, that heavenly light has come, truly, fully, immeasurably divine, and yet he dwelt among us in human form. Divinely clothed in humanity, eternity assuming human nature. How, how do we speak about this awesome reality? And sometimes when we're contemplating something, it's helpful to say what, what it's not, and then that will help us better establish what it is. And so, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes this statement about the incarnate Christ. He says, have this mind among you, beginning in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here in Philippians, Paul's holding in tension, or what feels to us like tension. It's not in the mind of God, but it feels to us like tension. Here is a human servant, a form of a human servant, and yet he's the form of God. How can these both be true? And Paul says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now let's think about some ways that this passage, and this is an exercise in why you don't take one verse all by itself and establish your doctrines. You need to understand the scriptures systematically. And so there were a number of efforts that have been made over, the, over, the, over history to sort of try to reconcile what feels to us like tension. How can he be both fully God and fully man? Does this mean that Jesus went back and forth, maybe according to his circumstances? In one moment, in one circumstance, he's divine. In another moment, in another circumstance, he's human. Well, no, that's not it. Or does it mean that Jesus set aside his divine nature in total and his divine attributes during his 33 years of walking as a human being. No, that's not what it means. Listen to Herman Bavink, an older uh, Dutch theologian. He says, it is a mistake to take this, this phrase in Philippians chapter 2, this emptying himself. He says, it's a mistake to take this phrase to mean, as some do, that Christ in his incarnation in the state of humiliation, completely or partly divested himself of his divinity, laid aside his divine attributes, and thereupon in the state of exaltation gradually assumed them again. For how could this be since God cannot deny himself? And as the immutable one in himself far transcends all becoming and change. Now, now bear with me, these are weighty matters, aren't they? And these are the kinds of things that can make your head hurt. I mean, spiritually speaking, this is, this is like drinking a, 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 a Frosty really fast. Okay? But, but, but bear with this. This is, this is an important doctrine for our Christian faith. In fact, our Christian faith rests upon 
this doctrine, that, God, that Jesus Christ is human and divine without mixture, without composition, without confusion. So what Bobbing is, is saying, it, it's a mistake, and some people have tried to make sense of this by saying, well, what he did, what Jesus did was he set aside, he emptied himself entirely of his divine attributes, that he temporarily set those aside. I heard a, a well-known Reformed theologian just recently say that this is what happened. That when it came to, for example, Jesus saying that neither the Son nor any other human being knows the day or the hour, he argued that, that Jesus had set aside his omniscience while he was on earth. And that he would take it up again when he was resurrected and ascended into glory. Was well, that correct? No, it's not. In fact, it's an ancient heresy. I'm not accusing this brother of heresy, but that, that's, that's, that's where you go if you don't have these quite firmly fixed in your mind. What is at stake here? So heretics throughout history have, have sought to sort of make sense of this. They've tried to make the incomprehensible and tried to bring it down and make it comprehensible. They try to make that which is mind-boggling in the truest sense of the word and make it accessible to us so we can make sense of it. And so some have sought to rationalize or simplify the, the majesty and the glory of the incarnation by arguing that Either Jesus was not really God, he was God-like, he was, to make up a word, God-ish, but he wasn't really God. Of course, that's Arianism. Or others have said he was, he merely appeared to be human. He was and he remained fully God. He merely appeared to be human. The ancient heresy of Docetism, for example teaches just such a thing. Or, uh, more commonly, and we find this prominently in the last 150 years or so, is this idea, even sometimes among conservative and, and even Reformed folks, many have argued that what happened was that the eternally begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, added to his divine nature. That he added humanity to his divinity. that he added a human nature to his divine nature. Now, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with saying he, he added something to himself? Well, it's a problem because God can't change. God does not change. In him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is immutable. He does not change. And if you add something you are of necessity changing that thing. Adding something to himself is a change. It implies a previous deficiency or somehow an increased degree of perfection. That can't happen with God. See, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, cannot change. He remains eternally the only begotten Son of God. Now, when you study older theologians and you read older commentaries, you will find that the incarnation is described in really two phrases, either taking on human nature or assuming human nature. Taking on or assuming human nature. And while that's a technical distinction, it's important so that we can fully affirm our Savior's both fully God, unchanging, 
for eternity. And he's also fully man, now for eternity. Do you know that your mediator was raised to heaven with a human body, a glorified human body? And that's the promise that we have, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, that in the resurrection we will have a body like his. For eternity, our Savior now has a body. Christ is our perfect mediator, possessing, even now, both a divine nature and a human nature. Our high priest continues to intercede for us as both God and man. This is the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. It's not that, it was, that this was a remarkable, a remarkable event that happened 2,000 years ago, but this remains a continuing reality for God's people. We have a divine human mediator interceding for you, for me, today. One person, two natures, in the language of our confession, without conversion. So the, the, the divine and, and the, the human As God assumed human nature, nothing converted about his divinity. Nothing converted about his humanity. They remained distinctly human and divine. Nothing was was composed together. It wasn't like you, you fused two things together, like you welded two pieces of metal together. Nor was there any confusion. There were distinctions in the natures of human and divine. Nothing was added to him which he did not already possess in, perfect, in perfection from all of eternity. See, we can say this. We can say that the eternal Son added to humanity, but we cannot say that humanity added to the Son. You see the distinction? God in his infinite wisdom added to humanity the perfection of his divine Son. He was not lacking anything. He didn't need for humanity to be added to him. That would do nothing but corrupt him. Bavink continues, this is continuing the the quote I read earlier, he says, no, even when he became what he was not, he remained what he was, the only begotten of the Father. But it is true that the apostle says that in this sense, Christ made himself of no reputation, being in the form of God, he assumed, hear the language, he assumed the form of a man and of a servant. Now, does this make your head swim? If you're honest, it does. Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully human. And also, from the incarnation onward, he has assumed our full human nature, both body and soul. Now, the theological term, you've probably heard this, is hypostatic union. Well, that's a big word. It is but it's easier to say and spell the word than it is to define the concept sometimes, isn't it? Our God is incomprehensible, and and we ought to resist the temptation to try to, to dumb things down in such a way that our minds can begin to wrap around them. We need to accept and declare what how God has revealed himself in his word to help us meditate further upon this perfection and the glory of this child, this son that Isaiah declares to us, and about which he prophesied 700 years before the Christ. Think about these words. This is how our confession of faith describes this reality. This is in in the second paragraph of the eighth chapter. This is the, the chapter entitled, Of Christ the Mediator. 
chapter 8, paragraph 2, we read this. This is what we confess. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance, meaning they have the same essential properties, the same essential qualities, of one substance and equal with the Father who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things that he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. So you notice the language, took upon him man's nature. It doesn't say add to. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit, that's the divinity, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, humanity, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah. Of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scripture, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Christ our mediator. Memorize this. This is easy enough to memorize. One person, two natures. One person, one mediator, one Christ with two natures, human and divine. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Praise God for his wisdom, the inscrutable ways of our God. Who, who can understand his mind? Now, why, why make so much of, of these detailed and, and even technical descriptions of our mediator? Why, why make so much of this? I mean, come on, Pastor, it's Christmas. Give us something that's, that's a little easier, a little simpler. And while it may be challenging, to, to wrap our minds. In fact, it's impossible fully to wrap our minds around this truth. We need this. We need to contemplate the wonder, the majesty, the mystery of the incarnation. And the reason for it is, is the background, the hypostatic union is, is very difficult for us to comprehend. The reason we need it is not as hard to comprehend. The reason we need such a comprehensive mediator, a God and a man, is because we have a comprehensive problem. Sin infects everything in us and everything about us, both body and soul. We need a comprehensive Savior. We need one who is fully God and fully man because our sin is comprehensive in its scope and in its effects. Sin has defiled every part of us, both body and soul. And, and we need this perfect, we need this complete mediator to satisfy the full demands of God's justice and, and to save us completely. We need far more than, than political or, or social or economic deliverance, don't we? See, the darkness that we face, the darkness that each one of us faces, is, is darker than we can imagine. It's, it's, it's more pervasive, it's deeper, it's wider, it's broader than anything we can imagine. Therefore, we need a Savior who is sufficient to meet every part of our humanity. We need a God-man. In Luke's Gospel, 
he records for us the, the, this, this glorious event. And I, 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 when I get to heaven, there's a number of conversations I want to have, but one of the ones I want to meet is Simeon. I want to meet Simeon. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, here's this old man. Luke describes him as devout and righteous, and the Holy Spirit had indicated to him that he would not see death until he saw the Messiah. And then one day, one day, Mary and Joseph walk into the temple carrying their infant son. Fulfilling the law, the law required that the firstborn of the womb, whether man or beast, was to be brought before the Lord and dedicated as holy. So they're fulfilling the law. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, in verse 25, we pick this up. He says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the, the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus was the promised child about which Isaiah prophesied more than seven centuries before his arrival. He has come in the flesh, the eternal Son of God. He has revealed the thoughts of men's hearts. Do you know this Messiah King? Do you know the one who knows your thoughts and intentions, the words of your mouths before you even speak them, before you even think them? Have you believed in him for the forgiveness of your sins? J.R.R. Tolkien, through the beloved character of Samwise Gamgee, I think he expresses this, this sense of darkness and dawning light. He expresses this triumph of light over darkness. Listen to this. Samwise says, I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes... You don't want to know the end, because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand I know now. Folk in those stories had a lot of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. They were holding on to something. You know, this is almost precisely what the Scriptures call us to do in the midst of darkness. Almost. 
And, and I say almost because the Scriptures command of us, because the Word of God gives to us not a something to hold on to, but a someone. The child, the son, the God-man. Our passage in Isaiah 7 concludes with verse 7. Look back. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, there was nothing in Israel that would accomplish this. There was nothing in Judah that would accomplish this. There was no internal motivation for man to do anything about his own misery and sin. It was only the zeal of the triune God to fulfill his own covenant of redemption made in eternity, expressed through the coming of the God-man that could do this. As you sit here this morning, even this Christmas day, perhaps even now, you're tempted to turn back in fear. Or even worse, perhaps you're tempted to retreat back into the shadow of your own sin. You may be tempted to throw up your hands and claim there is no hope, there is no light for the darkness you presently face. But the call comes to us to believe, to express our faith in the God-man by persevering in his promise. That the light will dawn, it is so certain, it is more true than me standing here before you. Instead, will you persevere in faith? Instead of turning or fleeing into your own sin, will you, will you hold on to someone? Or even better than that, will you believe that someone, the God-man, is holding on to you? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your only begotten Son, that in your perfect wisdom and in your perfect timing, in the fullness of time, you've sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, clothed in humanity and yet fully God. But we confess we, we cannot comprehend this. But we pray that by your Spirit's help we will believe it, that we will rest in it, that we will trust this truth, and that we will trust the giver of truth. We pray that by your Spirit's power, we will believe this great gospel, that our sins can be washed away. By your Spirit's power, will, will you give us grace boldly to confront the sin that remains in us? To seek your power, to see it mortified and cleansed from us. We thank you that the penalty of it for those who are in Christ has been canceled. We pray that we will walk before you growing in sanctification, growing in our conformity to the very image of our triune God expressed in the Son. We pray that a love for one another would be a clear mark of the work of grace within us. 
as we lift our voices in praise to our King together. We ask this in his name. Amen.